change happens when ordinary people do extraordinary things. And my guest is a change maker who is on a mission to change the world through diplomatic solutions and SDG activism. He's only 19 years old, but already a recipient of the Global Youth Award, the Governor General Achievement Award for Excellence in Academia and Service. And just two weeks ago, he won the Dan Award. He's also a youth advisor to the government of Jamaica, the UN Youth Ambassador for SDG's 2030 Agenda. He's a youth parliamentarian, a speaker, and an activist. Academically, he has received numerous awards that if listed would take up almost half of the show. My guest is Najee Nunes. <laughs> Welcome to my Nova Matter, Najee. Thank you so much this morning. I am humbled by the introduction and look forward to the discussions. Yes, congratulations. You have, you have just received the Dana Award, which is considered one of the highest accolades a young person can receive for social action and humanitarian efforts. This is an international award, so it's big. Tell us about the award and how were you nominated? As you rightfully mentioned, the Diana Award is the highest accolade any young person aged 9 to 25 can receive for their humanitarian work and social action. It is named in honor of Princess of Wales, Princess Diana, who believed in the power and the prowess and the potential of young people. Um, it is also the longest running award for young people doing great work all around the world through a retrospective nomination process. And so I say that to say that the award is not one that you have to apply for. It's one that you are nominated for. They believe that young people do not work towards the award, but rather they demonstrate their suitability through their actions without any expectation of the accolade. So it's something that persons would see you in the diaspora, see you doing your work. Personally, I was nominated by the United Nations and successfully shortlisted and went through the whole process and the rigmarole. And here I am as a recipient. And it has been a very inspiring and rewarding experience. Personally, like the award says, I've not been one who does any work for any accolade, any achievement. I just do the work because I know that's what I want to do. And I see a need and I'm filling a need and I'm being a catalyst for change. So it was never something I'm like, I'm working actively towards a Diana Award, but it's something that just fell into my arms. Okay. And what were some of the things that you had done that kind of grabbed their attention? I know you did some work, especially in the pandemic. Can you give us a little of that? All right. Mm -hmm. So um, my work is done on three echelons. I do community-based work, national work, and global work. So in the community, I am a teacher or pre-pandemic, I will, well, even during the pandemic, I still taught, but it kind of, you know, slow down now. But I teach kids PEP. So my young babies aged 8 to 12, you know, that's usually grades 4 to 6 at the primary level. I'll be teaching them the PEP subjects, and that has been one of my greatest joys. Um, throughout the pandemic, which I executed some national projects, and that one in particular caught the attention of the Diana Award and the United Nations, which was my National Youth Development Seminar Series. And I band it together with some fellow youth parliamentarians, and I'm like, okay, we see that so young people have some serious problems. We're talking about education, we're talking about learning loss, we're talking about unemployment, we're talking about the lack of engagement between the state and the young people during the pandemic because of the strain COVID has wreaked on that relationship. And I'm like, how can we as youth leaders step in to fill the gap, to fill the void, to kind of help to create that change that we want to see? And after internalizing and cogitating about it for a second, and I pondered and I pondered, I'm like, why not do a youth development seminar series? 
We need to ensure that our young Jamaicans are able to remain marketable and competitive even in a post-COVID-19 world. And how do we do that? We give them the skills, we empower them, we ensure that whatever is happening right now is not you know, um, degrading them or debasing them, it's enriching them. And so we executed a two-week seminar series. We focused on entrepreneurship, we focused on personal and professional development, we focused on climate change, and we focused on um, what's for entrepreneurship, personal and professional development, volunteerism, and climate change. And I selected those four things because I recognize them as four key ways in which our young people can help to build back better. We have to talk about climate change. You have to talk about your own personal and professional development. We're talking about how you can volunteer throughout your communities. And of course, so many of our young people are entrepreneurially minded. How can we ensure that your business can be safeguarded in a, such an you know, unprecedented time as this? So that was the activity in particular, in tandem with my teaching activities that um, caught their attention for the Diana Award. And I've been doing work globally with the UN, working with various agencies such as the UNDP, WUFUNA, UNIFEM, um, just and as a youth advisor through that post to ensure that youth are not only informed but engaged in the global vision for the future. We always hear that young people are our future, but I'll correct you and say young people are or now we're here. And for, for posterity's sake, if we're not engaged in what is happening now, then what does that speak for our future? Mm -hmm. We have to be here, we have to be engaged, we have to be a part of the processes. And if that is so, then we have a brighter future for everyone. So to answer the question, it was really the teaching activity and the youth development seminar series that caught the attention of the Diana Award. But the work I've been doing is far expansive of that. But that is very commendable because in the midst of a pandemic, when everybody's actually thinking about self and how I'm going to make it through, you're thinking about our youths just the same. And um, I noticed there was also a picture of you um, um, handing out books to the community, some communities in Portland and St. Thomas. And that is really commendable because often we tend to forget the rural schools and I must applaud you for that. So um, you have been teaching children in your community for free for the past six years. What motivates you to serve your community through education? My community and the overall St. Thomas is a parish that is abundant in talent, abundant with people, um, just persons who are just teeming with beauty and with grace and wanting to make a change. But what we lack are the avenues and the conduits for that development to take place. And so I always was one who was a paragon of education. I always thought education was the, because I couldn't do sports to save my life. <laughs> so it was always the bookwork for me that kind of helped to, to save me. It was my, my saving grace. And so I always reflected to my schoolwork to get things done. And I realized that my story in my community was one of the fortunate few. There were so many persons who are my age who can't afford a tertiary education, who are doing things on the corner, on the roadside, because they feel as though they have no other option. And I realized that if I'm able to step in and share the little knowledge that I have to kind of help them better themselves, then why not do that? So I volunteered through various community organizations and that's how my teaching journey began. Before I used to teach um, grown folks, persons who were older than I, um, because we had a little program at one of our community-based organizations where we used to help persons, grown persons, parents, who back in their time didn't have the opportunity to go to school for one reason or another. 
And so here they are in their grown years wanting to go to CXE and CSEC. And that was a very interesting experience, you know, seeing me entering the classroom and persons that are twice and thrice my age looking at this little 15-year-old boy standing in front of them. But it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a rewarding experience nonetheless. But that's how I got my impetus to go and share what I had because I realized that this knowledge could make a difference. Um, you talk about volunteerism. How can we get our youths to volunteer more? Ooh, how can we get our young people to volunteer more? I think we need to get our youth galvanized first about certain things. Youth will not volunteer for something that we don't have certain interest and awareness about. So if you want them to get them very um, actionized about a particular matter, we have to ensure that they are one aware of it and they understand the repercussions of it. And so in doing so, we can help to create this healthy environment where young people are not being prodded to become activists and advocates and agents of change, but because of their realities and the circumstances that are around them and ensure their communities and their homes, they get the inspiration to do it themselves. So I think that's something that is important. If we're able to give them the knowledge, give them the information, and are able to explain and edify them on why this is so important and what the consequences of your inaction could lead to, then we can have them being more um, engaged and infused about various matters to volunteer for themselves. Um, I have to let our audience know the level of contribution that you're making at such an early age. So you are presently the youth advisor to SDGs and the 2030 Agenda. So many persons might not know about the Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs. Tell us about them and you may give us a few of them. For sure. All right. So the Sustainable Development Goals or the Global Goals for Sustainable Development or the SDGs for short, I would say are a collection of 17 interlinked global goals that are designed to be a blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. And the SDGs were set up in 2015 by the United Nations General Assembly and are intended to be achieved by the year 2030. So when you hear us talk about the 2030 agenda, you know what that means. Now, as I said before, it's a blueprint. It's a map towards the world we see. Many describe it as being a passport for a future. And so we have various goals, 17 of them that we have described that we are to achieve by the year 2030. Um, I know them all by heart, so I'll just run through them quickly. Number one is no poverty. Number two is zero <laughs> hunger. Number three is good health and well-being. Four, quality education. Five, is gender equality. Six, clean water and sanitation. Seven, affordable and clean energy. Eight, decent work and economic growth. Nine, industry innovation and infrastructure. Ten, reduce inequalities. Eleven, sustainable cities and communities. Twelve, responsible consumption and production. Thirteen, climate action. 14, life below water, 15, life on land, 16, peace, justice, and strong institutions, and 17, partnerships for the goals. So these are the 17, I would dare say, ambitious goals that we have set for ourselves. And in achieving them, mm -hmm. we achieve what it can be termed as a more sustainable, a more just, and equal world for everyone. So that is what the SDGs are, just a password to a better future that we all have a role in playing. Or do you think those goals will be met? Uh, um, in Jamaica or in a global space? <laughs> well, globally, I don't know. Um, Not sure. I will but say... let's start with Jamaica. Okay. Um, we are definitely on our way. Progress, I will say this. Progress has certainly been made. That is, is undeniable. Can greater strides be made? Absolutely. 
but we are more we're achieving some of them greater progress can be made but back for 2030 and apologies for the ambient noise in case you're hearing anything but for the 2030 goal to be met we'll have to be doing a lot of pivoting a lot of changes will have to be made because of course the pandemic has just truly upended everything that we thought was normalcy and orthodoxy and so it requires us now to kind of change to the changing times and so for us to meet SDGs in Jamaica and on a global level, we definitely have some work to do. We have to see what the needs are, go into the communities, see exactly how we can change things, what needs to be amended, both at the policy level, at the grassroots level, everywhere, so we can have that change being achieved, not only at certain areas or at the cosmopolitan and metropolitan areas, but the rural areas as well. We have to reflect that parity in everything that we're doing. But certainly, I know we are making great strides Jamaica is a, a world leader for um, SDG 5, that's gender equality. We also are very good at SDG 13, especially at the policy level, that's with the climate action. But where the other SDGs are concerned, definitely there's more work to be done. As youth advisor to the government, tell us what do you do? Tell us what you do. All right. So as a member of the Youth Advisory Council of Jamaica, um, we advise state leaders through the Ministry of Education, Youth and Information on matters of policy development and the programming actions of the government. So when a policy or a bill is laid and a youth perspective is needed on it, or even if not a youth perspective is solicited, but if youth have an opinion on it or believe that something ought to be changed, then that comes from Youth Advisory Council. So we work with our various state leaders, advising them, championing youth perspectives and ensuring that the youth voice and the youth interest is always protected and safeguarded in the government space. So what, what are some of the issues that, um, that are affecting all youth? Right now, and I actually did this on my Commonwealth Youth Council, I chopped it down to three main issues. Youth unemployment was the first one, and I'll speak about that for a bit. That even before COVID-19, if we're able to reflect the 2008-2009 financial crisis, we quickly learn that young people are the first to be dispensed in a work setting. Why is that? Because young people, we have less skills, we have less qualifications, we have less education. And so when it comes for people to be laid off, when it comes to persons to be you know, kicked to the curb, then we go to young people. And unless we have those social safety nets established, and especially at the policy level where we can have some safeguarding happening for our young people, then we're going to be kicked to the curb rather quickly. So that's item one that I would say was certainly the first one. Another problem that I had identified was youth engagement. Young people must be engaged for the vision to happen. It can be a case where we have young people who have the potential, have the propensity, who are longing for change, and we're just having them there languishing on the vine because, oh, they're young people, or, oh, and I've ex ex you know, experienced that so many times when somebody hears that I'm 19, they're like, oh, what are you doing here? You know, leave this for the grown folks. But no, I'm here, I have an opinion, I'm not going anywhere, so deal with it. So that's another thing that I think is very important for our young people to be engaged and not just tokenistically, but meaningfully. We're more than just placeholders at the decision-making table. We have a voice, we have an opinion, and those opinions can be very advantageous in the proliferation and in the advancement and development of people. And if we want that goal to be achieved, then we have to be a part of it. So that was the other issue that I recognized. And the last one was youth equity. That so many times, it burns my ears many times when I hear politicians, state leaders, and other youth leaders referring to youth as this blanket term. But the way I experience something as a young man is the way is not the same way rather as a female would experience it. You know, we have young persons living with HIV and AIDS, we have young persons who have disabilities, young persons who are from um, ethnic minorities who are from rural areas. 
And the way these people experience things is different from how I endure it. And so, especially at the policy level and the way in which we carry ourselves and the engagement that takes place and even the employment must reflect the diversity of the youth space. So those were the first or the main three areas that I had identified that young people must um, be or must be amended and must be corrected going forward. That's youth engagement, youth employment, and certainly, certainly youth equity, how we go about engaging our young people. Um, what has driven you at such a young age to make a difference, not just in Jamaica, you know, but in the, in the world? I mean, that's a big mission. Oh, um, I must say, I... I, I I've always been like this. I can't remember Neji before, um, or a different Neji from another time. I've always been one who was just always a catalyst for change, hungry to see things take place. And when he tells me no, that gives me the impetus to keep going forward. But especially at the global level, that I would have to give credence to the UN. I had a very active club at high school, the United Nations Club at Monroe College. And because of that, from I was in third form, I was attending Model United Nations at um, the UN. That's when I gave my first address to the United Nations General Assembly. Um, and thereafter, I went to many more MUNs, and because of my good performance, I was selected in 2017 to be an advisor to the permanent mission of Jamaica to the UN. And there, I continued to champion for youth perspectives. I continued to lobby and advocate for the freedoms of young people globally. And so, if I had to say this all came from a place expression on a global level, has to be hands down the UN. That has been my conduit my incubator, that has been something that has molded me and given me, um, especially work career-wise, because I want to be a diplomat. That's where I would say that comes from, that drive to be a, a diplomat and to create changes through those formal ties. So certainly the UN, especially on a global level, that's where I'd say this, this um, international activism stemmed from. So let's go back. Um, at what age did you start um, displaying leadership skills? You know, like persons took note and said, boy, Najee, you don't have it. Um, it's always been latent, but I would <laughs> say it took root between second and third form for me. Um, I was very okay. unsettled <laughs> in primary school. And really? Yes, I was. But I think about really? those days, I'm cringing. <laughs> I was somewhat of a class clown. I remember there was those good old days. That that, at all. Right. So my parents, because my, my, my grade six teacher had great concern and trepidation for my responsibility. And she suggested to my parents that in order to inculcate those skills, send them away to a boarding school. And so said, so done. Um, I, next thing I knew, I was in a community of which oh. I had never heard before I entered. And I was at Monroe College for five years and I would never have gone somewhere else. But it was at second or third form because I had to settle myself in first form, living away from home. I didn't have the quintessential experience of, you know, going to school and coming home and mommy cooking dinner for you and you're going through things that I was all on my own. I only got a chance to come home once a month. So um, that was just me. So it was in second form I began to be settled and focused and organized. And third form, I would say, it started in second form, but third form was where I'm like, okay, Najee, you got this. This is where we're going with life. This is what we're doing. That's when I got, and I didn't even come to full circle until university, but that's when I had a semblance of the direction in which I wanted to go. Okay. Um, so what was your experience like at Monroe College? Well, or some of the things that you did there? <laughs> oh, I, Monroe was like a great experience, honestly. 
I probably wouldn't have told you that while I was attending, but looking back now, they're probably some of the best years of my life. And they set the foundation <laughs> for the man you see before you now. Um, a lot of, I was very active. I was one of those Nuff students. You know what I'm saying? Nuff, that, that was me. Nuff was Najee in high school. Believe you me. I was a part of the debating club. In fact, I was a champion team member of when we won the Burger King National Secondary Schools debating competition in 2016, when I was only in third or fourth form at the time. So I was an avid debater. I was a part of public speaking. I was a part of the inter-school secondary Christian fellowship. I was a part, of course, of the United Nations club. I was a part of the Literary Arts Public Speaking and Debating Society. I was very active in my own house. Um, I'm trying to remember some other stuff. But as I said, just to summate everything, I was a very enough student. I was salt everywhere Najee was. I was a sub-prefect. I was doing so many things. And of course, at the same time, I was involved in national leadership, doing so, so, so many things. So Monroe was a great time for me. I enjoyed mostly the debating and the United Nations experience. But it was a melting pot of so many different things that gave me my high school experience. So Najee, you probably would have heard comments like, boy, that are you the nofisi man? How did you handle that kind of negativity? Listen, to this day, to this day. But what I always tell myself, I have to be firstly, and I always tell people, you can't expect people to believe in you if you don't believe in yourself. You have to look in the mirror and say, this is who you are. And it took me a while to come to this, this realization, this acceptance myself, because I, of course, I was always one who was, one who was um, a paragon for the Queen's English, always speaking English wherever I go, um, because my mother inculcated in that me at a very young age. And of course, going away to an all-male institution in the country, that was not necessarily well-received. And so I had to believe in myself and say, this is who I was. I am not changing for anyone. You have to assimilate to me, but I am not amending myself to society. And I had to be comfortable with myself. And it was upon receiving that level of comfort and that assurance that I realized I needed from no one else but myself, that I was able to believe in myself and have the confidence in my abilities and that unwaveringness in my talents. And that's where my own self-assurance came from. And so I would say to anyone who is going through similar circumstances where persons are looking at you, like sometimes you have to look in yourself and do some introspection to say that, yes, I need to change. But when you know this is the way you are and you know there's nothing wrong with the way you are, then just believe in yourself and be unyielding and unwavering in that stance. And that is what has retained my sanity all these years. You know that I know who I am. I know what I'm about. And I know I'm not done. So many persons see me copying all of these awards. But I'll tell them this, that you see the glory, but you don't know my story. There's so many nights and my mom can tell you when I'm up until 3, 4, 5 a.m. and I have to get up by 5.30. And I'm doing all these things. I'm working late in the night. I have five meetings a day. I'm finishing, especially because of the Commonwealth now. I have meetings at 3, 4, 5 a.m. I'm not complaining. But you see me getting the awards and you're like, oh, this guy does nothing. But have like water on stone that just rolls off my back because I know my story and I know what I had to go through to be, be featured on this podcast today. So just know yourself, be confident in yourself and all will be well. Just believe in yourself and leave the naysayers and the non-believers to do what they do, which is just speak pejoratively about people that try to bring them down. And they do that because they want to feel more comfortable about the way they are now. In tearing people down, they feel more comfortable and they are able to say to themselves, if him never do it, me couldn't do it either. 
or say if not she can do it, me can do it either. But now that I've done it, they're like, I could have possibly done that too. And it makes them feel a bit insecure about themselves. And so the way in which they challenge that insecurity is to be to speak rather negatively and subjectively about people. But don't pay it any attention. Just continue to do you and the accolades and everything else will follow. Um, at age 15, you made youth leadership history when you became Jamaica's youngest representative at the World Federation of the United Nations Conference in New York. At 16, you were again the youngest Jamaican to serve as an advisor to the permanent mission of Jamaica to the United Nations. You have addressed the United Nations General Assembly several times. What is that experience like? I see you've done your research. <laughs> I'm so humbled. That experience, it has been amazing, awe-inspiring. There, there's no other way to put it. Words fail to describe the euphoria and just the ebullience I feel every time I have to go to the UN or I see something, an email from the UN or I'm doing some work with the UN. That's just where the dream is to become the United Nations um, Secretary General. So let's just feed that into being from now. But that's where I, I've always been focused. And that experience has always been one that I've never taken lightly because there are many persons who would have killed to have similar um, opportunities. And I am there. I have the opportunity. I am there. I'm doing what I can do. And so I take that with great pride. I know with great power comes great responsibility. And so that adage has never been one that has laid on deaf ears. And I take my responsibilities at the UN and with a leadership space I have very seriously because I know that there are young persons out there who are depending on me to do a good job. And that continues to keep me focused and centered and organized. So that's what that experience has been like. Very rewarding, very enriching. It is one that has provided me with a greater sense of direction where I want to go with in my life. And I'm forever grateful to the UN for a life-changing experience. Um, you have achieved so much. What are some of the principles that have led to your success so far? So from high school, there are many things that have you know stuck with me over the years, especially from my Monroe days. And they always told us about these core values. And I've kept them with me all my life to this moment. There are 10 of them, I believe. So it starts with respect, mutual respect. That's something that is, is near and dear to my heart. Honesty, candor. You have to be real with yourself. You have to know that sometimes, and I'm going to go off a bit of a tangent here, but especially where our friends are concerned, if your friends aren't telling you the things that you don't want to hear, they need a new circle of friends. You need friends who are going to tell you that that's not right. I don't think you did the right thing there. <laughs> not the ones that are just going to be yes people. Everything you do, they agree with. So that's one that has always stuck with me. Integrity. This is a big one. What are you doing when no one is looking? And for me, that means that even when I'm not on a global stage, even when I'm not at the, the platform, I'm not in front of a, 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 a camera, I'm not in front or standing at a lectern. What am I doing? And that speaks volumes for me. You know, that speaks to my very core, that integrity is something that's very big for me. Um, knowledge, I'm, I'm what you call, uh, oh gosh, the, the word is evading right now. It's going to come to me in a second. A lover of learning. The, the word is coming to me right now, but I'm a lover of learning. And so anytime I can get my mind or I'm learning something new. I have an app on my phone I play every single day just to learn new words because I'm one who's always trying to expand my Lexus. Mm -hmm. It's something I do all the time. A philomath mm -hmm. just came to me. A philomath is someone who loves to learn. 
um, balance. And this is something yes, I'm, I'm yes, telling you. Yes. I have a bit of an affliction with. I don't get a chance to have much balance, but I try. <laughs> um, I one when I'm stressed, I burst out in spontaneous song. <laughs> so this is me singing the whole song. My neighbors here, we scream from top of my lungs, singing some song. You know, I'm stressed. So that's the way I cope. So balance is something I always do. I used to play tennis very much when I was a child, but okay. I lost the racket. Don't ask what happened, and I have not been able to play since. But I have memories that I, I I cope. I take a long walk. I try to exercise. You know, I I do my thing. Um, also responsibility. That's a big one for me. I have to take myself very seriously, and I have to know what I can manage. So I try to be very responsible. Winding down commitment. And it's another big one for me because if I'm committing to doing something and I'm devoted and dedicated to doing it, rest assured, it's going to get done. So I'm a man of my word. If I say to you, I'm going to be here at one o'clock for the, the, um, the podcast, then I'm going to be here at one o'clock for the podcast. There's no doubt about it. So commitment is very big for me. Accountability, that's also something that is very important. Confidence, have to have confidence in yourself. And lastly, excellence. Excellence is just something that I have to... Is just innate for me right now. It exudes, and mediocrity is just not it for me. I I, I can't compute it. I, I don't know how persons do it. I have a standard. I can't go lower than that standard. So anything less than the Najee esque is just not it for me. So those are the, my core values that keep me centered. How important is your faith? Because you you have always talked about um. God and church and yeah, listen. Jesus is the center of it all. <laughs> Jesus is the center of it all. When I am going through, there are certain moments that you just have to go through alone. And I'm about to head out on one of them when I am beginning my master's in global affairs with a concentration in international relations and global futures and a specialization in the UN. And I'll be all alone in a new city, um, new life, new school. But I know I'm not going alone. I'm going with the Lord by my side. And so he is one that has just mm -hmm. consistently, even when I know I don't deserve it, has been there for me. And has been one who has just been a stalwart, a column, a pillar in my life. And mm -hmm. I am just forever grateful. I am thankful for his love that I truly feel I'm undeserving of. Because, you know, our righteousness is like filthy rags before him. But Jesus is at the center of it all for me, <laughs> all the time. The first time I get up in the morning, I have to whisper a word of prayer. God, I give away, came up this morning, and that means my purpose on earth is not yet done. And so it's just, I'm a product of his grace, his grace, his mercies, his unending love. And I'm just so, 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 so thankful and grateful for all he has done and continues to do in my life. Um, you just mentioned that you'll be going um, to New York to do your master's. That means that you you believe in your parents. Then you you tell me um tell me about your parents. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so mom works at the Spanish Court Hotel, and my dad is a a um, freelance videographer. So he works with various government ministries and agencies to help them curate and organize various um media content and uh, i must say it's not just them i have my grandma who is also here and grandpa they're both retired but i must say that i'm also a product of my family i have a very supportive family and that's something i am eternally thankful for um it could just be that i, I get a little certificate or I have something going on at school. They're excitement galore in the house. I'm telling you, they're just always there, ever supportive. 
I'm just so, so thankful for the constant love and guidance that they give to me because it is something that has molded me to the person I am today. They're very encouraging, very reassuring, very maternal and nurturing, and I am a product of their labor. So um, now is your opportunity to, you know, hail up some of your supporters in St. Thomas. <laughs> All right. So firstly, um, my church, if they ever hear this, Shalas Baptist Church, big up to everyone the church. Um, to my very good friends, um, Sajay, Shani, Haley, um, the rest of themselves, everybody, I love you all so much. Um, it's Malings, my mentor, Asha, the whole Next Step family, that's the one of the community-based organizations I volunteer with. Um, so many people, if I, I'm going to stop calling you, so I'm going to get in trouble now. But those persons and the rest of you guys, you know yourselves, you know yourselves. Big up every time. I'm sure they're all proud of you. Um, so finally, what message do you have to leave for the youths in Jamaica? Ah, uh, this is it. Social media is a web of fallacies. Guys, it's all, I'm going to sound a bit woke, but it's all a lie. It's all a lie. Persons will post, you know, those high moments, the, the weekend life, as some will put it, but the weekday life, the nine to five, they're not showing you that life, but they're showing you the accomplishments and the accolades and those high moments. But I will tell you, stay in your lane. Don't compare yourself to anyone. And this is something that I had to go through myself because there was a period of my life that I was just so unhappy, so depressed, just so doleful all the time because I saw persons, although they were much older than I, but I'm like, they've achieved so much and I'm here and I'm, I'm sitting here with nothing. But I had to recognize that I was not in a competition. I'm doing this for myself and they're doing their own thing and I'm happy for them. And now I'm doing my own thing and I'm happy for me. And I had to have that level of self-assurance and that own self-support to know that I'm not looking to the left nor looking to my right, but I'm looking at me. I'm looking in the mirror. I'm doing my own thing. So I say to all the young persons out there, don't look to Najee. You can probably look to Najee, not trying to sound pompous here for an example of what is possible. But certainly not to say, I want to be like Najee. Just be like yourself. Don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Don't look and compare yourself on social media with persons you think in your own way you can emulate. But just be yourself. Be confident. Be you. Because you are the US you that you can be. And there's only one you. And as Michelle Obama would say, as you are in the process of becoming, just become yourself and embrace yourself and love yourself. And all that you're looking for will follow. It has been a pleasure, Najee. And continue to be an inspiration. And I'll be watching you. And I'm sure that you will be the Secretary General of the UN. In the future, I'll be looking forward to that. Thank you so much, Mr. Boy.